I have to be honest with all of you, I wrote a B-minus sermon this week on 1 Kings 19. I sat down in my office, I I read the scripture, I read the right commentaries, I wrote 2,000 words about what is happening to the prophet Elijah, and in praying over it, I felt God nudging me to preach about the need for the absence of sound in our lives. I even picked stories from my life where silence had been remarkably important, where silence had allowed me to really hear what God was trying to say to me. Our whole worship service, in fact, was planned and designed around the topic of silence, about the need to listen more than the need to speak. And last night, after returning from our wonderful ice cream social and praise band performance, I turned on the news and I realized very quickly that I had to throw my sermon away. I realized in watching the news that what I had prepared was not what God wanted me to say, nor was it what God wanted you to hear. So this morning I opened my computer and I highlighted the entire sermon and I pressed delete. And I wrote another sermon right before the 8.30 service. I did it because watching the news last night was a reminder to me that I needed to be silent and listen to what God was saying. A handful of months ago, the overwhelming majority of the city council in Charlottesville, Virginia, voted to remove a Confederate statue that had been erected in honor of General Robert E. Lee. Lee is somewhat of a beloved figure here in Virginia. We named streets after him, we named schools after him, we put statues up for him all over the place. People love Robert E. Lee without even really knowing anything about him. And so when the city, their council, decided to remove a statue in his honor, people went ballistic. On one side, there were people who were thrilled, who were so filled with hope and joy that the city was finally willing to be bold enough to take a step in a new direction. That the city was willing to ask themselves a hard question, and that the city was willing to publicly declare what they believed. And on the other side, on the far other side, people were outraged. Outraged that a man of great respect and honor in history was going to be torn down as if he never really mattered in the first place. And then, like things happen now, these days, people stop talking about it. This is the way our news cycle works these days. They fuel us with anger and vitriol, and we talk about something for two weeks, and then we move on to the next subject, then we move on to the next subject, and then we move on to the next subject, such that we can't even really remember what the news was about a month ago. And the same thing held true in Charlottesville. Because for a month, it's all anybody could talk about. It was in the national news, and then just as quickly as it arrived, it disappeared. Now, the feelings were still there, no doubt but they were percolating under the surface. And they were starting to get a little louder and a little louder and a little louder until this weekend in Charlottesville. Because groups from all over the country met in Charlottesville, Virginia this weekend to protest the removal of the statue. People came from all over the country to stand in affirmation of what the city council said. And some were there just to try to hold the peace. 
So last night when I got home and I turned on the television to the news, I saw what I thought was the National Guard entering into a city in our state to keep the peace. But in fact, I was not seeing the National Guard. No, I was seeing militias from all over the country wearing army fatigues and carrying rifles over their shoulders, walking into the city to claim their side of the argument. And then I saw what I thought were a group of clergy standing tall in protest about what was happening, but then I saw them pushed and spit on and berated by the throbbing crowds. I saw what I thought was a group of young people marching to protect the lives of the protesters, but in fact it was a group of neo-Nazis carrying torches and chanting anti-Semitic rhetoric. And the news channel uh, switched over to a reporter who was on the scene with different individuals. And she asked them all the same question. The same question that God asked Elijah in the cave. What are you doing here? The first man who answered was about my age. He was wearing an army helmet with a rifle hung lazily over his shoulder. He was not looking at the reporter. He was staring directly into the lens of the camera when he answered her question. He said, I am here to stand for my freedom. People keep trying to destroy my white heritage and my white church. I am here to stand for free market economics. I am here to destroy the Jews. What are you doing here? The next man was older with a long scraggly beard hanging below his neckline. And everything he, came, everything he said came out as a shout. And because it was on television, they had to bleep out every time he shouted the N-word. He was filled with anger, and all he said was, white people are superior, and the N-words have to leave our country. What are you doing here? The next man to speak was young. He was black, and he was wearing a shirt that said Black Lives Matter on the front. But before he was even able to answer the reporter's question, angry protesters were pushing forward in order to shut him up before he even got a chance to speak. What are you doing here? Yesterday afternoon in Charlottesville, Virginia, a man got into his car, a white man, a man who had been there to protest the removal of the statue. He got in his car and he turned it on and he drove it into a crowd of protesters. He drove it into a crowd of people who wanted to remove the statue. And one of the people he hit was killed instantly. And dozens others are still in the hospital. What are you doing here? Before we even get to this episode of Elijah in the cave, there's so much that's already happened to the young prophet. He has done so much for the Lord to the degree that the queen, Queen Jezebel, has sent a man to him to say, the queen is going to take your life this very day. And so Elijah runs for his life. He runs off into the wilderness. He's out there for days. And finally he collapses under what is called a bush in scripture. And he pleads for God to take his life because he's so ashamed. And God says, no, Elijah, I still have work for you to do. So he sends an angel with food to help literally bring him back to life. 
and send him on his way. So Elijah continues to wander and wander and wander until he finds himself in a cave. And after spending the night in the morning, he wakes up to hear the voice of the Lord speaking. And the voice says, what are you doing here, Elijah? The prophet responded, oh Lord, I've been such a good prophet. I've done everything you've asked me to do. But now they're hunting for my life and I'm the only prophet left. God, evidently disappointed with Elijah's answer, commanded him to stand out on the mountain. And first, there was a great wind. A wind that was so strong that it broke rocks apart. And then after the wind, there was an earthquake that shook the foundations of the world. And then after the earthquake, there was a great fire that burned everything in its path. But the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. For after all of those things, Elijah heard the sound of sheer silence. And after he heard the silence, he went to the mouth of the cave. He covered his face with his mantle, and the Lord asked him again, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah was a prophet, but also a revolutionary. And sometimes the two go hand in hand. He was a defender of the Lord and an enemy of corrupt leaders within his own nation. He even killed false prophets. He was such a revolutionary that at the time of Jesus, everyone asked Jesus if he was the new Elijah, because it sounded like he was trying to turn the world upside down as well. And what made him a revolutionary was his commitment to a world where widows and orphans and strangers would be protected. Elijah was like the person far more concerned with whether or not people have food at Rising Hope than what President Trump recently tweeted about. Elijah was like the man at the hospital arguing with the intake nurse that someone had waited far too long before being seen by a doctor. Elijah was like a couple that did not hesitate to bring a foster family into their home when they were in need. And yet, for as much as we praise Elijah, for as much as we love this prophet, he fled. And if we're honest, most of us would have done the same thing. When we feel overwhelmed by the world, by our responsibilities, by our commitments, we run in the opposite direction. We flee from helping those who cannot help themselves. We run from the hectic nature of our lives to vacation destinations and bad reality television. We flee from breaking news reports about the possibility of nuclear war, about the possibility of a race war in Charlottesville, and we run away in a stiff drink or the bottom of a bottle. And it is there, it is there in the caves of our own making that we wait for a word from the Lord. Like Elijah, we wait for God to tell us exactly what to do. Or we wait for God to fix all of those problems that are going on in our lives. Or we wait and hide because we're not even sure if God's still out there anymore. And that's when God shows up. That's when God shows up not with a solution, not with an answer, but with a question. What are you doing here? And we are in the presence of God, whether it's majestic or mundane, whether it's in the silence or in a firestorm. It's about being transformed. 
Who we were fades into something new and wonderful because God is the one changing our lives. But Elijah, this prophet, he was the same after the experience of the silence as he was in the cave at the beginning. His response to the divine question is the same. The earthquake and the wind and the fire, all of them were distractions. God was not in any of them. They are a reminder that when we are desperate, we are tempted to look for God in all of the wrong places when God is the one looking for us. We look for God in big, bombastic language from prosperity preachers who tell you everything's going to be okay. Or we look for God in the rays at work that we think will finally fix all of our problems. Or we look for God in broken relationships that will never be what they once were. And God's question to the prophet is important because Elijah's answer was wrong. What are you doing here, Elijah? Oh Lord, I've been a good prophet. I've done everything you've asked me to do. And now they're trying to kill me. And I'm the only prophet left. But Elijah was not alone. There were still thousands of faithful in the community. There were still thousands of people that called God their God. And so God commands Elijah to go. Go back to God's people because there's still work to do. My friends, this is what we call grace. Despite Elijah's fears and his failures... Despite his inability to remember the God that had called him to be a prophet in the first place, God did not give up on him. God still had work for him to do. But the prophet could not hear the call to go until he experienced the silence. Because it was in the silence that he really remembered who he was and whose he was. I don't know about you, but I like to think we live in a better world than the one we inherited from our parents. I like to look at the history books of the past to see how far we've come. I am grateful that if you look around the church this morning, you will see people who do not look like you. I am grateful that we live in a world where there are no longer water fountains that say colored and white. I am grateful that our children sit in classrooms full of people from all over the world with every shade of skin pigmentation. But when I turned the news on last night, when I saw what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia yesterday, I realized that maybe we haven't really come that far at all. Maybe we've spent so much time congratulating ourselves for being progressive that we've lost sight of what really is happening. Because friends, just like with the prophet, God still has work for us to do. Whenever you open your Bibles and you read a story about God, God is there for the people on the margins. God again and again and again stands with those who are being persecuted and belittled and martyred. If God sent the prophet Elijah into the world today, he would say, go be with the black people in Charlottesville, Virginia. Go be with the black people in Woodbridge, Virginia. You still have work to do. Over and over and over again, God implores all of the prophets, all of God's people, to be mindful of those who are suffering. Of those who are not in the middle, but those who have been forced to the margins of life. 
And friends, we can distract ourselves all we want. We can distract ourselves from the suffering of the people around us. We can go to the right grocery store and the right shopping center in order to avoid people who don't look like us. We can take our kids out of public school and send them somewhere else. We can do all kinds of things. But the God we worship is a God who was born into the suffering of the world. A God who was born to parents that don't look like anybody in this room right now. There will be times in our lives that are so overwhelming that we can lose perspective. We can run and hide in a cave just like Elijah. We can tell ourselves all we want that what happened in Charlottesville yesterday will never happen here. But I promise you it does every day in some small way, shape, or form. We can tell ourselves all we want that the angry white folk in Charlottesville are fringe racists. But I promise you they are here in this community too. They're as close as our parents and our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors. They are the people mumbling in their cars whenever they pass a black man on the street. They are the people who spit words of hate at black women in parking lots. We can tell ourselves all we want, that we've inherited a better world. But Charlottesville is a small indication that there is still work to be done. We've got work to do, because our God is not done with us yet. God chooses people like you and me to make the kingdom come on earth. God interrupts our lives with stories like what happened to the prophet. Whenever we gather in this place for worship with moments of silence so that we can really confront who we are and whose we are, God is asking us a question. God is asking us the same question that the reporter asked those men in Charlottesville, the same question that God asked Elijah in the cave, and how we answer God's question will define the rest of our lives. What are you doing here? I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.